You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Well, we're turning to the book of Psalms again this evening, and our passage this evening, Psalm 124. As Susan was uh, speaking there, uh, my mind went back uh, in time uh, to a young student at the University of Paris, uh, who in some ways may actually be the reason why the Christian unions are not allowed to meet on the university campus. For all I know, uh, he graduated from the University of Paris, uh, went to study law, uh, came back to Paris. Uh, one of his friends, a man by the name of Nicholas Cop, COP, became rector of the university. And uh, this young man, now in his early 20s, uh, wrote his rector's speech one year, uh, which turned out to be startlingly evangelical. Uh, this was the 1530s, uh, just before Susan was able to <laughs> go to the University of Paris, uh, and uh, the, the young speechwriter's name was John Calvin, uh, whom David Robertson often quotes at uh, those occasions we're having the Lord's Supper, and he's preaching through the Psalms, and is about 60 Psalms short of the Psalms of Ascent. And all this uh, comes into my mind, not just because of Susan, because Calvin says in his introduction to his commentary on the Psalms, uh, what I think is almost the best one-liner description of the Psalms. You don't expect Calvin one-liners you know, stand-up one-liners. But he says, the Psalms contain an anatomy of the soul. The Psalms contain almost a complete anatomy of the soul. And what he means by that is that, uh, as I think Luther said, uh, God speaks to us in His Word, but in the Psalms He gives us His Word so that we may speak back to Him. And there is surely not a, a, an experience of the heart, a situation in the Christian life to which the Psalms are not appropriate. And we are together on Sunday evenings on a very slow pilgrimage, reading through the Psalms of Ascent, which uh, I've suggested in common with others who have made the suggestion, it's by no means unique, that they were brought together wherever they were written and at whatever time and in whatever experience they were originally written, they've been brought together here at this point in the Psalter in order to lead pilgrims through the inner as well as the outer experience of going on pilgrimage. The, the Psalms did not fall down from heaven in a numbered order. Somebody somewhere decided we're going to put 150 of them together. They're going to be in this order. They're going to be in five books. And towards the end, we're going to have this little 
mini hymn book for uh, those who are going on pilgrimage, and we've been tracing together elements of that Christian spiritual experience, and uh, we come to 124, which is entitled A Song of Ascents of David. Remember I said the middle of these psalms is a psalm of Solomon who built the temple. On either side of that middle psalm, there are two David psalms, uh, and that gives it a kind of temple structure. David wanting to build the temple, Solomon, his psalm in the middle of this pilgrimage to the temple. A song of ascents of David. If the Lord had not been on our side, let Israel say, if the Lord had not been on our side when men attacked us, when their anger flared against us, they would have swallowed us alive. The flood would have engulfed us. The torrent would have swept over us. The raging waters would have swept us away. Praise be to the Lord who has not let us be torn by their teeth. We have escaped like a bird out of the fowler's snare. The snare has been broken, and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Always a little intimidating when your minister announces in the morning that the psalm that's going to be preached on in the evening is one of his favorite psalms, very encouraging for everyone in the congregation, but for the person who is to expound that psalm, there is a kind of deep instinctive response that says, well, why don't you preach on the psalm this evening? But this psalm is, I think, probably the second best known, the second favorite in Scotland, at least, of these Psalms of Ascent. 121, Lift My Eyes to the Hills, is probably the best known. And this one, perhaps especially to a 20th century generation of Scots, would certainly be up there. My family didn't start going to church until after I was converted, but I still have memories of armistice day or Armistice Sunday services that always began with this psalm. And it has in Scotland almost in those days a kind of anthem-like ring to it, this great surge of gratitude for a national deliverance. And it struck me during the course of the week's 70th anniversary of the Normandy landings, all the sense that there was after the First World War that God had almost miraculously strategized those events. Praise to God for delivering people from a foreign alien nation's desire to dominate. And now, 70 years later, if Christians are praying and burdened and concerned, it is almost as though the situation has been reversed. And what Christians are praying for is that they will be delivered from the oppressions that are brought upon the Christian faith and the Christian church, 
in the very country they love, to which they are devoted. And if that is the case, and if that increasingly becomes the case, we will not be the first Christians to experience that kind of oppression, and we may not be the last. One of the most famous occasions in Scotland in which this psalm was sung towards the end of the 16th century, a gospel minister who had been imprisoned was set free. He came to Edinburgh. He was met on the outskirts of the city by some of his friends as they came into the city. Up towards the high street, they began to sing Psalm 124. If the Lord had not been on our side, let Israel say, And there were about 2,000 people apparently singing this in four-part harmony, so much so that one of the men who had persecuted this minister, John Dury, said he had never seen what to him was a more frightening sight in Scotland in all his days than the sense of the covering of God, the confidence in God that these Christian believers expressed. That's a a very old thing in the Christian church. Ignatius of Antioch, one of the very early Christian martyrs, once said, what will destroy the temples of the idols will be the worship of the church. And you catch a sense of that in the psalm. Uh, It's structured almost the way we sing psalms here, unaccompanied. Uh, Those of us who know the tune, we maybe pitch in on the first word. But if you listen when we sing our psalms unaccompanied, we're usually in word four or five or even the second line before everyone is on board. And in a way, it's an expression of how this psalm is structured. It's almost as though there is, a, there is a priest leading the worship. Perhaps this is how it actually was sung. And he sings, if the Lord had not been on our side, now let Israel say, and all Israel gathered as they are for the feast days. All Israel joins in, if the Lord had not been on our side when men attacked us, we would have been swept away. Now, this is a particularly interesting psalm in the series because it is a David psalm. And it would be possible, I think, if you know the life of David, to think of different occasions in David's life in which this psalm would have been unusually significant. But it is significant that we are not given that information it is significant that we can't say, I know David is speaking about this event in his life. Now, why would that be? It's true of many of the Psalms, most of the Psalms. And the reason is because if the Psalm were particularized, it would be more difficult for me to say, and that applies to me also. So, the reason it's generalized is that it makes it easier for us to be drawn into the psalm and to say as we read the psalm, I've been in situations like that. I understand that. 
I don't know quite what David would have been going through, but I have been there. I have done that. And here is God's Word for me to be able to praise Him for the way in which He has enabled me to recognize the identity of my enemy and the way in which He's enabled me to rest in the sovereign care and power of God. Now, as we've been going through this series of Psalms, something rather subtle has begun to take place. Uh, I haven't mentioned it. I have wondered if perhaps any of you have noticed it. There's a transition that has begun to take place and actually comes to full flowering here. Up until this point, the psalmist has spoken about himself. I lift my eyes to the hills. Where's my help going to come from? There have been many me's, many I's, and the occasional you. But it's only now you get a little hint of it in Psalm 123. You now get it in Psalm 124 where the psalmist, and this is expressive of a real spiritual growth process, where the psalmist is not just thinking about himself and about his situation, but about the whole community of God's people. Um, You watch little children play together. You go into a playgroup or a nursery for tiny children. What do you see? You might see 15 children They're all playing in the room. The interesting thing is every single one of them is playing with himself or herself. It's one of the characteristics of early childhood. There are lots of things to play with, but you do it yourself. Then what happens? You notice somebody else has got the toy you want, and you don't say, can we play with your toy together? You say, I want the toy that you've got. Give it to me. And we recognize that it's part of the maturing process in our children, where without saying it in these words, they they actually say, let's play together. That's a well-recognized fact of the way in which children develop. It's an interesting thing, isn't it? We don't develop from selflessness to selfishness. We develop through many hard knocks from selfishness, self-centeredness, to community life, to making relationships with people, and to having a sense that we belong to something bigger than ourselves. And one of the great things about being a Christian believer is that you not only belong to something bigger than yourself in your own congregation and the congregations you know among the people of God throughout the earth, but you belong to something bigger than yourself that goes way back into the history of the church. And it's this that's beginning to emerge in the 124th Psalm, the sense of we and us and we are together in this, and we share together in these conflicts. And also this sense that uh, perhaps with the exception of history students in the university is almost generically true 
of 21st century people, we know absolutely nothing about past history. Absolutely nothing about past history. And so, we continue to repeat the mistakes of the past. Ask somebody, who are the most important people in the last 700 years? And you are likely, those of you who remember the polls that were taken in the run-up to the new millennium, you are likely to get answers in terms of what people are seeing on their television screens contemporaneously. Now, you see, the very fact that we, we're reading the Psalms, the very fact that we are anchored in the New Testament distinguishes us from those who are not Christians, immediately distinguishes us, because it gives us a sense that our lives are not only anchored in a, a community of this fellowship, but we are anchored in the ongoing purposes of God throughout the ages. That's a, that's a wonderfully liberating truth, and it's a, it's a gloriously exalting truth for the Christian to understand my little life seems on its own to be nothing, but it's been caught up into the glorious purposes of God. And I share in the ongoing work of God, the pattern of my life is the kind of pattern I see worked out in the pages of Scripture and in the history of God's people. And it is a glorious thing to be a child of God. And here, of course, he's thinking particularly about struggles that God's people have had, opposition that they have faced. Let me draw your attention, first of all, to the emphasis he has here on the fact that the church has been set within the context of ongoing conflict. Now, I don't have enough confidence in the, the, uh, the, the memorable nature of my preaching to imagine that you remember me saying a few months ago that the whole Bible is a series of footnotes to Genesis 3.15 and that Genesis 3.15 sets up from that verse right through to the end of the book of Revelation the lenses through which we are to view everything that takes place. And what are those lenses? Those lenses are the conflict, the antagonism between the unbelieving seed of the serpent and the serpent himself, the evil one, on the one hand, and the seed, the believing seed of the woman, on the other hand. And so, as you look at the whole of the Old Testament through these lenses, you're not surprised to see that the people of God individually and corporately find themselves constantly faced by opposition and experiencing conflict. Sometimes that's national, Sometimes it's individual. Sometimes it's expressed in the Psalms in David's particular role and the purposes of God's kingdom, but it's there from the beginning to the end. And you remember when Jesus says to the disciples after Peter's confession in Matthew chapter 16, He says to His disciples, you need to realize, dear disciples, that that conflict in which the church is engaged is now intensifying, and it's going to go on to the end. I will build my church, 
and the gates of Hades will seek to destroy it, but they will never be able to overcome it. You read through the Acts of the Apostles, and it looks as though it's the, it's the history of that text. You go to the book of Revelation, and it looks as though it's the movie version of that text. And so, one of the things that this psalm builds into us, as all the psalms will build something in particular into us, is the recognition. Here he's in Jerusalem. He sees the buildings. He thinks about the past. He looks around. Perhaps some of those around him, he's a young pilgrim, some of those around him have found themselves engaged in profound conflict. And he comes to recognize that the whole of the life of faith, not just as an individual, but as a community of God's people, is going to be conflict and opposition from the beginning to the end. I think it's maybe interesting that this comes at the fifth of these Psalms of Ascent, because it doesn't usually come at the beginning of our Christian pilgrimage, does it? We're usually a little way on when we suddenly discover the Christian life is not the plain sailing it seemed to be at the beginning, when God gathered His lambs in His bosom, and uh, everything seemed so fresh. Almost, it almost seemed easy to be holy. The, the way in which some sin that gripped me had, had had its neck broken by the power of the gospel, and, and then I began to discover, no, there is conflict. I begin to discover, perhaps to my surprise, now that I love and trust Jesus, I'd actually forgotten about my past when I didn't love Him and I didn't hate Him, and I'm surprised at people's reaction. Remember how Peter is to say that to first-century Christians. Don't be surprised. Why does he have to say that? Because we're surprised. There's actually something quite surprising about it, but the Scriptures teach us not to be surprised by opposition not to be surprised by conflict, because the church of Jesus Christ is being built on enemy-occupied territory, and its presence, your presence, is bound to evoke conflict. So, that's the first thing you need to know. Conflict is inevitable if you're Christ's. But the other thing the psalmist grasps, and uh, you can sense in the, the dynamic, the movement of this psalm, that it's almost as though the, the song leader is going, to, is going to go through the whole psalm to teach us about something else that's true in the midst of this conflict. But the, the older pilgrims, they already know, and he's only got the first line out, and they they all join in. What is it that we need to know, apart from the fact that the church is always engaged in conflict? It is that the church is always on the victory side. Let Israel say, if the Lord had not been on our side, then we would have been broken. But the Lord was on our side. The Lord was for us. And you we need to catch this 
appreciation of what the psalmist is saying. On the one hand, there will be conflict, but it doesn't drive us to despair. It doesn't depress us. Why? Because we have more reasons to be encouraged by the fact that the Lord is on our side than discouraged by the fact that they or that, whatever it is, is not on our side. Remember when I was a little boy at a friend who lived across the street, get home from school, four o'clock or whenever, out to play football in the streets. Those were the days when Scottish teams got to the World Cup because little boys played in the streets instead of playing on their computers. And uh, we would play, and uh, one of my friend's dads seemed to get home from work earlier than all the other dads. And uh, his name was Ross. I think he'd played for Third Lanark if that means anything to anybody over 50. So he had played professional football in a kind of way, and then he would join in. Uh, You could be 6-1 up and know your mother was going to call you in for your tea in five minutes' time. If Mr. Ross appeared, you knew you you were a goner. (laughs) 6-2, 6-3, 6-4, 6-5, 6-6, Here comes Mr. Ross. Mr. Ross, will you be on our side? Because if you're on our side, it's impossible for us to lose. It isn't that there is no opposition. It is that there is one who is playing for us, who is able to give us the victory. And that's the balance of the Christian life, isn't it? That's the balance that this pilgrim needs to learn. Perpetual conflict and yet assured victory, because the Lord is on our side. Then he does a very interesting thing, at least I find it rather interesting. He doesn't say, that's great, now let's get on to the next psalm. He says, no, we need to pause here and and think this through a little more. So, he speaks not only about the church's conflict, but he begins to examine the church's enemy. And uh, this is an important thing for us to know, isn't it? Not just to have a kind of uh, casual head in the sand, well, the Lord's on our side, we're bound to get the victory. No, when we are engaged in conflict, one of the things we need to know is the enemy, isn't it? I mean, I think that's a basic principle of all military strategy. It's a basic principle of playing in the World Cup, never mind military strategy, isn't it? I saw a documentary on Ryan Giggs the other night, uh, the few weeks he was managing Manchester United, and there was the board, and, and there was the other team, and he was moving around the men. Why? Because his scouts had given him all kinds of information about the enemy, And actually, if you go to a soccer match, it does look as though they're the enemy, doesn't it? And it's the description he gives of this enemy that I think is very interesting. Um, It's as though though he's saying, you know, I think I'm beginning to understand the character of the enemy, no matter the specifics of the opposition. 
And this is why this psalm is so applicable to us. Um, There are four marks he delineates of this enemy, and he, he does it in a flurry of word pictures. Now, why does he do that? Why does he use these metaphors? Because he wants you to feel them. If he just said, we've an enemy, you know, that would have registered up here, but it wouldn't have registered down here and here. He's wanting us to sense the reality of the power of the enemy by the pictures he paints. And you see what these pictures are. The enemy is angry. If the Lord had not been on our side when their anger flared against us, there is this anger that flares up. This is one of the things that at first surprises us. I'm just going around my business trying to be a faithful Christian believer, trying to fulfill my Lord's commandments to live in His grace, to love for His sake, and there's such anger against it. And then he speaks in verse 3, and later on in verse 6, he he describes the enemy in terms of a devouring monster. They would have swallowed us up alive. And in verse 6, they have they have not been able to tear us by their teeth. And then in verses 4 and 5, like an overwhelming flood, the flood would have engulfed us. The torrent would have swept over us. The raging waters would have swept us away. I was thinking this morning when David was referring to Johnny Cash, Johnny Cash has this great song, Six Foot High and Rising. And it's some guy who's in a flood and the waters are are coming up, and it's terrifying. I, I always used to think when I saw um, the news on television, and you'd see people stuck in cars, and the water's coming up to the window, you think, what are these idiots doing in cars? What are they doing? And then one night, I was being driven by a student. There was a flash storm in Dallas. Uh, he drove into an area uh, where the the, the water was coming down in torrents, and we couldn't get the doors open, and the water was beginning to rise. And then I apologized to everyone in the universe who had been stuck in a car during the news and thought, they weren't idiots. It happened so quickly. And this is what it was like, he said. It's like an overwhelming flood. And then he uses this marvelous picture in verse 7 of a fowler snare, hidden, you see, baited and hidden. And uh, whatever of God's little creatures or big creatures you might be, you see the bait, and you walk into the trap, and you're a goner. And he's thinking about the way in which there were occasions where he just managed to escape and no more. Now, what do we do with these things? Because clearly, these, these pictures are pictures of what we might think of as physical enemies, perhaps other nations that he's describing. Well, here's what we do with them. Um, we don't transfer them to Scotland. No, no matter how you vote in the referendum, this is not 
about an ethnic people. This is about God's people and God's children. And that's why it can be applied to us. It isn't actually about the Second World War. It's about what happens to God's chosen community. And when they are a national community, an ethnic community, then of course the opposition can be ethnic and national and physical. Do you remember how Paul handles all this? He says, all these things that take place in the history of God's people in the past are like examples or or molds, shapes. And we we can apply the shape of what happened nationally to the way in which our Christian life is lived spiritually. Our enemies are not national enemies. The weapons that are used against us are not physical weapons. But he's saying there is a a pattern here. Just like you remember, Jesus saw that there were patterns of His own life already embedded in the pages of the Old Testament. He understood, and He taught the apostles, presumably, that some of the patterns that you see in David were actually patterns that would come to their perfect exemplification in him. That's why on the cross he was using Psalm 22. It was though he was saying, Lord, you used David there in whatever he was going through in the sense of God forsakenness, but it was actually It was real, but it was also a pattern for what would happen to me. And the same is true of our own lives. That's why it's interesting. I don't think that this is something that would have been in in the Apostle John's mind, but it's very interesting. When in the book of Revelation, which as I say is like a movie version of this principle, conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, And much of that language is caught up in the book of Revelation, especially Revelation chapter 12. And in Revelation chapter 12, each of these particular ways in which Psalm 124 sees the enemy attacking reappears in the conflict between the serpent, who has now grown into a great red dragon, on the church of Jesus Christ. And uh, it's amazing to see it, the way in which he is an angry enemy. And twice, Revelation chapter 12 speaks about his anger, his anger against God's people because they are God's people. And he's a devouring monster. He's, he's portrayed as waiting at the womb for the Christ child to be born in order to devour the Christ child. And then when the Christ child is protected, what does he do? He goes in hot pursuit of those who belong to the Christ child. And how does he seek to destroy them? One of the things he does is he spews a river of water out of his mouth to drown them. And fascinatingly, 
He is the one who seeks to capture them as his prey. And when you, when you see this, this line that goes from Genesis 3.15 through Psalm 124, through Matthew 16.18, right through to this vivid picture, uh, which you can almost smell in Revelation chapter 12, you're kind of able to stand back from the Bible and say, oh, I think I see it now. I think what I need to see is that behind all the conflict that I experience, all the pressures that are placed upon me as a Christian believer, I think the book of Revelation using John sees the same things in this vision as David saw in the conflict of his experience. I see I need to look behind the scenes of time. My dear friends, that's such an important thing to do. And yet, it's one of the things that Satan seeks to blind us from, isn't it? So, Paul is anxious to say, dear brothers, we are not wrestling against flesh and blood. That's a, that itself is a great deliverance. Somebody in the office, somebody in the street, somebody in the family constantly becomes angry because of your faith. You walk on eggshells. You want to be gracious. You know that there are potential further conversations with them. Somebody who minimizes your Christian faith, the kind of things that Christians experience more and more and more. You will get nowhere as long as you think it's just him and it's just her. No, the Scriptures say, alas, they are tools in the hands of a, an angry enemy. That enemy is angry because he knows Christ has died for you and brought you to himself. He knows there is nothing he can do to destroy that, but he will do everything in his power to darken your sense of the blessing of being His. And that's what it means to be involved in the conflict, that we learn to know our enemy, that we learn to understand our enemy, says Paul in a kind of astonishing statement to the Corinthians. I studied this earlier on in the series in 2 Corinthians, uh, where where he sees the kind of things that are going to happen because of the sin of an individual, and then how poorly the church handles the sin of an individual. Either, don't we, we kind of turn a blind eye, hope things will go away, or there will be other people in the church who will go for the jugular, and the church can be split, and people alienated, and not knowing how to treat one another, and in the middle of all this, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2, we are not ignorant of his strategies. And I sometimes think, but Paul, that was the problem. That was what you were dealing with. Maybe that we is the royal we. I, the apostle, and those, we understand what's going on here. You Corinthians need to understand that this is not simply a matter of humans with humans, that uh, because you belong to the people of God, you're, you're caught up into a conflict that has cosmic proportions. 
And it is actually, for all, it can be very frightening to grasp that. It's what a help it is. What a help it is to deal with the person who is always on your case by thinking he's simply a tool. She's grown so large in her powers to intimidate me, but she's just a Michelin woman. There's somebody pumping her up behind, isn't there? And so I need to learn to deal with spiritual conflict using spiritual weapons. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, says Paul, and so we need to learn to wear the armor of God. Well, that brings us to the third thing that he's speaking about here, the church's conflict, the church's enemy, and of course, the church's resources. And this is so beautiful, isn't it? It it reappears really in verse 8, doesn't it? Uh, What lies behind our sense of being delivered and giving praise to the Lord that we have not been torn by enemy teeth? Well, he says it's quite simple. He says our help is in the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. I mean, that's a statement you don't need to try and memorize. If you, you never read that verse before, you leave church this evening, and it's memorized, isn't it? Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Where does our confidence lie? Well, it lies in this statement in three things. First of all, the name of the Lord that's referred to is His covenant name. That's why we know that we will be protected, because He's made His covenant with us in Jesus Christ. Not only is it the Lord who has done this, the covenant Lord, but we are protected, do you notice? Our help is in the name of the Lord. Does that mean you use Yahweh as a kind of magic thing? Yahweh, Yahweh, and I'll be fine. Just say the name Jesus and everything will be fine. No, one of the things we've noticed in our studies is that the background to this whole visit to Jerusalem is actually the, the ultimate blessing of seeing the priest come at the end of services and raise his hands in the benediction of number 6, 24 to 26. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance on you and give you peace. The threefold benediction of the Old Testament. Do you remember how that is actually described in number six? Moses is told by God, in this way, I will put my name upon the people. I will put my name upon the people. That's what he's doing with these raised hands. He's saying, I'm putting the name of the Lord on you. A friend who was at college with Michael Jackson. Michael Jackson? Michael Jordan. Wow, that's a difference. (laughs) Michael Jordan. It's the initials. Got me confused. Uh, After Michael Jordan had signed his contract with the Chicago Bulls, worth endless millions, 
uh, and uh, he was about to leave college. My friend and a couple of other friends went out to play golf with him. He turned up with the latest gear, you know, top of the line, golf clubs, all the stuff, and he slammed his ball 30 yards off the fairway into these trees, went into the trees looking for his ball, and did not emerge. They wander into this forest saying, look, you've just signed this multi-million dollar contract. What are you doing looking for your ball? Do you know what his answer was? Those of you who play golf or give golf balls to friends know that you can get the company to put their name on the ball. You know? Will. You see? So you know it's your ball, not somebody else's ball. So he's in the middle there with a bag full of balls. My friend says, Michael, what on earth are you doing? I mean, even I, pee on I, if my ball was in there, I'd just walk away. He said, you don't understand. My name's on that ball. Oh, what's he? He's thinking about the embarrassment of some 17-year-old boy wandering through and picking up this ball. It's got Michael Jordan sliced his ball 40 yards off. Yeah, but you see the point, don't you? He was going to search for that ball until he found it for one simple reason. He had other balls, but his name was on this ball. That was why he was determined. This ball will never be lost if it's got my name on it. That's what it means to have the name of the Lord put on you. And it's interesting, isn't it? It's more than interesting. It's significant. I think it's hugely significant that there is a New Testament version of the Aaronic benediction in a threefold name. And it's given to us at our baptism, isn't it? We are baptized in the name of the Lord who will bless us and keep us, the Lord who will make His face shine upon us, the Lord who will lift up His countenance upon us and give us shalom. But now, at last, you and I know how to pronounce that name. You know, the Jews never say Yahweh, never. Indeed, if you're an Old Testament scholar, you cannot be 100% sure how that name was pronounced because it was too holy too remote, and people stopped pronouncing it. And it's in that context that Jesus puts the name of the Lord on us and says, the name that's on you, this is why you can know that you will be protected, because the name that is put on you… I mean, what can a benediction do to you? what can it do to you? It's not magic, but when you receive it in faith, you understand that the name of the Lord has been put on you. What can any amount of water do to you? Whether it's a dribble or an ocean full, the water can't save you. But as you look to the water that tells you about the Word, and that the name of the Lord has been put upon you. 
you're able to say, listen to this, you're able to say in a way that David would have died and thought he had gone to heaven to be able to say, the name of the Father, the name of the Son, the name of the Holy Spirit is on me. I will never be lost. Because the Lord is on our side. Or more literally, the Lord is for us. That means the real question is, how do you know the Lord is for you? How do you know that? It can't be because things are going well for you, because we've been praying for people for whom things aren't going well, for whom things are going disastrously badly. So, if I thought the reason I know the Lord is for me is because life is full of sweetness and light, I would have missed the point. No, says Paul, if the Lord is for us, who can be against us? And we know He is for us because He didn't spare His own Son but gave him up for us all. And if that's true, he will give us everything we will ever need. Well, that's it. I'd better stop, and we'd better pray. Our Heavenly Father, take us, we pray, more and more fully and deeply into the blessings of this pilgrimage described in these psalms. We thank You, Lord, that the youngest Christian here, the feeblest Christian here, who may indeed be the preacher tonight, is able to say something that David himself never fully understood. And You've given us such a privilege of knowing You We pray that we may be encompassed, that we may know whenever we feel that we are lost and broken down, that Your name is on us. You will find us. You will protect us, and You will bring us home. We thank You for this great gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening. Thank you.